This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Kai Wortmann, the co-host of the channel, and I'm here today with Martin Korsgaard to talk about his new book, Bearing with Strangers, Arendt, Education, and the Politics of Inclusion. That was a highly stimulating read, so I'm really happy to have you, the author, here. Martin, welcome to New Books in Education. Thank you so much, Kai. Before talking about the book, can you maybe start off by saying a little bit about your background? What brought you into education? Um, well, I've I've been working in in education for well, basically all of my adult life. I, I started working as a, what we call a, a pedagogue in Denmark, in uh, kindergartens and after school centers, and then I studied as a pedagogue. I did the uh, the professional bachelor as a pedagogue, and work for five years in after-school centers with kids and, and young people um, before I decided to, to do a master's in philosophy of education. Um, and now I am an associate professor at Mama University. Um, I teach primarily in the uh, teacher education program uh, and now also in our international master's program in educational theory. Um, so, so I have uh, both a practical background, but then also the philosophical and, and theoretical, uh, which is my main interest at the moment, of course. That's that's quite rare. I, I wonder whether you can say on on a general level because we uh, before we uh, start jumping into the, the the book, how how can you say on on a general level how your practical work experience influenced your your thinking about education as a as a theorist? Well, I I think it it's influenced in. In, in a number of ways, but I think that the primary um, significance of it is that um, I tend to think of, of education as very much a, a discipline that is connected at, so both the practice and the, and the theory of education are, are for me intertwined in all of the interpretive acts that go on. Both when you're working as a practitioner, that can be as a pedagogue or as a teacher, you're constantly interpreting signs and signals and practices um, emanating from, from, from the pupils or the, or the children. Um, 
and and the interpretive praxis on a on a philosophical or theoretical level to me is also very much uh, or very similar to that process in the sense of constantly trying to to think about or interpret and analyze different ideas about education um, so for me those are intertwined which is of course quite different from the standard idea in educational research today that education is a field of practice with various institutions and using different scientific uh, theories or methods we can uh, interrogate that practice I see it more as as something that is inherently intertwined in in acts of interpretation of different signs and practices and signals and words and ideas and and things that we do. Right, I I really like the 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 idea or the parallel between reading the signs of children and reading, for example, philosophical texts about education. Uh, but maybe we can come back to this this later, uh, and and uh, talk about the the topic of your book, um, and it is on inclusion, and it's a big topic in educational discourse. Uh, there's a lot of um, discussion going on there. Why did you write another book on inclusion? Um, well. I, I, when I worked in after-school centers, uh, I, part of my job was as a, as a social or special pedagogue, and I worked with, with children that um, in some way or other struggled with being included in the school or in the after-school centers. So I had contacts with, with parents, and I did sort of special activities with the children and so on. So I have a, a practical interest in that. Um, in, in processes of trying to include children who are, for various reasons, struggling with with uh, being included in, in normal settings in the educational systems, if we can put it that way. Um, and then when I started reading the literature and looking into at the policy level, but also at the academic and theoretical level uh, into inclusion and, and inclusive education as, as, a, as an academic or a research field, I was quite struck by the fact that most of the rhetoric and, and, and most of the research was not really asking educational questions. Mm, right. So it was ethical, political, social justice perspectives on this idea that inclusion is inherently a good thing. Um, and, and of course, it's, it's difficult to disagree with the idea that all children should be included in our educational system and in our society and so on. But I struggled to find or see educational thinking um, about these questions. Um, so, so in a sense, I, I I tried to. I don't know if I succeeded, but I tried to turn the question on its head and say that before we can begin to talk about inclusion, we need to talk about education 
And then I had to narrow that down to focus on schooling, um, or what I in the in the book called the activity of schooling. Okay, before before we, uh, I will ask uh, precisely this question: what what do you mean by the activity of schooling? Um, I, l l let's explore a bit the, your uh, theoretical framework. You heavily refer on the writings uh, of Hannah Arendt. And uh, I know from reliable sources that you, for parts of your life, were referred to as the Arendt guy. Uh, can you tell us a bit about her? Who, who was Hannah Arendt and, and why are her ideas fruitful for thinking about education? Um, well, Hannah Arendt is uh, a German thinker uh, who... Um, Immigrated to the U.S. and and lived for for most for most of the part of her life in in the U.S. and and she wrote on a, a vast variety of of topics and tackled many contemporary and classical and philosophical and political issues uh, throughout her writings. Um, I think she's mostly known for her uh, infamous concept of the banality of evil and for her analysis of totalitarian regimes. Um, but she wrote two texts about education that are, to me at least, very, very interesting. Uh, her political works and her other works are also interesting and, and can also be put to use in, in thinking about education. Um, but But there's, there's, there's an essay called The Crisis in Education, which was the starting point for my interest in, in Hannah Arendt, and which began during my master's studies. And I wrote my master's dissertation on, on Hannah Arendt and education. Um, and um, so, so her ideas just sort of followed me into this project on, on inclusion. It, it wasn't really decided in advance that that would be the starting point. That sort of emerged out of this idea of trying to to talk about education first, um, and and then her essay, the crisis in education, became the starting point for that discussion uh, in the book. And uh, can can you tell us a bit more about this this essay, or what interests you in this essay? Why why should we read this text? Um, And why is it still uh, relevant for, for questions today? Um, well, I, I think the essay does a number of things. Um, first of all, it, it, it delivers a, a very interesting critique of progressive education. That is interesting, both from the perspective of, of the time in which it was written, because there was strong debate in, in the 50s and 60s in the US and in Europe between progressives and conservatives. Uh, and in many ways, that is a discussion and a debate that, that is still going on. But Arendt gives a very particular response to that debate, which, which doesn't fall into sort of a traditional progressive view, but also not a traditional conservative view, although the, the essay has been read in that way uh, as a conservative essay, but she's really trying to do something else. She's trying to say, which I find in a sense banal, but also 
very much illuminating. She's trying to say that education, in order to be revolutionary, or education in order to be able to have a positive impact on future society, must be conservative. She's not the first to say that, of course, but I think she she really does a good job of clarifying why that is. Why it is that in order to preserve what is new and what newness every new generation brings into the world, a potential for eventually changing and impacting that world, in order for that to flourish, education has to be conservative. So education, in a sense, concerns learning about the world, but not learning how to live in the world. Because for Arendt, and, and no doubt she was, she was influenced by her experience with totalitarian regimes uh, in the beginning of the 20th century in this idea, but for her, if we teach children how to live in the world, precisely what skills are needed, precisely what competences they're going to need, how they should understand different practices, ideas, uh, subjects, and so on, then they won't be able to, to let their newness impact the world in any meaningful sense their chance of, of doing that will be robbed from their hands, as she writes in the essay. Um, so that's one aspect which, 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 is, which she, she describes in the essay in a, in a really nice way. And, and, and in, to me, at least, also in a very convincing way. The second thing is that she, she makes a separation or distinction between education and politics. And that's a distinction that has been heavily discussed and also heavily criticized in, in much of the educational scholarship on, on, on Hannah Arendt. And the reason is, and I met this a lot when I was you know, first presenting the ideas for this book project to, to many different colleagues from, from different uh, disciplines within the field of educational studies, uh, that this this was simply um, incoherent because education is inherently political. Because education concerns also choosing what students are presented with. So it's a question of representation, which is also always a political question. Uh, we know from a lot of sociological studies that a lot of what impacts children in education goes on behind the back of teachers. So the hidden curriculum, for example, which shows that education is inherently and necessarily political in all of its aspects and facets. Um, so how can you even begin to, to talk about a separation or distinction between education and, and politics? Um, now, I've, I've already touched on one of the reasons why Arendt argues that education is not political. And that is because she sees the risk of a political education to be too great. 
the risk that it turns into indoctrination is, is too great uh, in order to risk that. But there's also a different reason. And that reason is that political action for Hannah Arendt is an activity that requires and is founded upon equality between the human beings who are engaged in the process. So in order for political action to manifest itself between human beings, the human beings involved need to be equal. Um, on the other hand, education, in order for there to be education, inequality is needed. Because someone, and in, in Arendt's framework, that would be a teacher, has to stand as a representative of the, of the old world. And the world will always be old from a viewpoint of the new generation. But someone has to stand as a representative of that world and show it to the new generation. And that instantiates an unequal relation, not necessarily an authoritarian or a relation that uh, entails abuse of power or anything like that, but an unequal relation because the teacher is the one who takes responsibility for the activities, in, in the case of the activity of schooling, of the activities in and outside of the classroom. So there is um, the educational relation is for Hannah Arendt inherently unequal. And that's also why it can't be political. Because the minute there exists unequal relations in politics, we're nearing a totalitarian regime or a, or a dictatorial relation in a sense. So she says that anyone who actually wants to educate anyone in the political sphere is actually trying to uh, oppress them. So those are the two sort of reasons he gives for that um, in, in the essay. And yeah, I think... Do you want to con continue, or should I ask something? That, that was a great summary of 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 Arendt. I I already learned a lot. But do you want okay. to say, say something, or should I should I ask a question? Go ahead, Kai. No, yeah, I I wondered uh, because um, you 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 write that educational theory and policy have been plagued by the instrumental fallacy, and. Um, I can now see and relate this to your uh, uh, background uh, in Arendt, uh, but can can maybe you explain this? What do you mean by by this instrumental fallacy, and and what is your alternative to it? The instrumental fallacy is is to put it very simply, and it is a, a simple idea. Uh, is the instrumental fallacy connotes an idea or, or a view in which education is seen as a means towards an aim that lies outside of education. So the instrumental fallacy, for example, is the idea that education is a set of practices and a set of institutions that exist in order to fix 
inequality, exclusion, environmental crises, financial crises, lack of specific competences in a society that is exposed by global competition. The idea basically that education is an activity of which we can ask that it fixes whatever societal, economic or political issues we consider to be uh, problematic or relevant in the current political climate. Um, so, and that's, I mean, that's not something that is new or uh, an idea that's, uh, the analysis that I give is in any way original. I think it's it's been done by many others and, and probably in, in, in more convincing ways than I present it uh, in the book. Uh, and, and the instrumental fallacy or this idea that education is a means towards uh, solving political issues or even a means for founding new political communities or new uh, political uh, ideas. I mean, it's, it's, it's as old as philosophical and, and educational thinking, maybe even. And it goes back at least to, to Plato. And I realize, of course, that educational philosophical thinking go way back uh, beyond Plato, of course. But, um, but that's where I start in the book with Plato and his idea that part of education's job is to sort people into the right sort of categories so that we can found a, a just society and a a fair society. So now I, I'm really interested in your alternatives and, and chapters three to six uh, of your book offer answers to quite fundamental questions. So you, you uh, ask the big philosophical what is questions and uh, the, the chapters read what is schooling What is teaching? What is a teacher? And what is a student? So maybe we can work through these questions and, and keep this uh, avoidance of the instrumental fallacy in mind. Um, and now, now I'm, I'm really bad and just ask you the, the, the question also. What is schooling? Yes. Um, well, a consequence of my sort of trying to turn my exploration of inclusive education on its head and then starting with, 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 with the question of, of education first was that I had to, I had to ask these questions. And, and in a sense, it's, of course, ridiculous or, and even uh, pretentious to want to, to ask and answer those questions uh, within a, a limited study as, as, as such as the one that I did. So, so I'm not saying that in the book I deliver the answer to what schooling is. Uh, I would say that I deliver at least a sketch of an answer or one way of trying to understand it, which is precisely as, as you said, Kai, which is an attempt at trying to think what is schooling outside of this instrumental fallacy, which has been at the heart of, of much of educational thinking, uh, I would say. Um, so... So what is schooling? Um, schooling is an activity that is characterized by a relation between someone who stands as a representative of a world and on the other hand, someone who is new 
to this world. Uh, and I think perhaps here it's important to say just a couple of words about what is meant by world in this sense here. Um, and, and, and I build on Hannah Arendt's idea here, and, and, and she builds in turn on Heidegger and other phenomenologists. But the idea here is that the world is a focal point. So the world is whatever uh, object or idea that we can put on the table and focus our attention on. So when we're engaged as human beings with the world, we're engaged with the objects and ideas that are around us. And then, of course, we each have our unique perspective from which to look at this world. And this, to me, also speaks to the what I call the activity of schooling, that the activity of schooling is the conscious act of putting this world on the table. And this is a metaphor that has, has reached us uh, via Marceline and Siemens' work in defense of the school, and they pick it up from, from Arendt. Um, and so the activity of the schooling is the conscious act of putting the world on the table so that the newcomers, pupils, children or students, whatever you want to call them, can direct their attention towards this object or representation of the world that we are concerned with within the activity of schooling. So, so one part of the activity of schooling, as I try to conceptualize it here, is this very act of offering something up, something that we as teachers deem of significance and value enough to be put on the table for the new coming generation to study it. Now, this doesn't mean that they have to understand it in the way that we want them to understand it. It simply means that we offer it up as an object of study, something that they can direct their attention towards. And then if we're lucky, they might become interested in it. So, for example, it can be a mathematical equation. It could be a text that we consider to be an example of the Romantic period. It can be a piece of music. It can be the activity of preparing a meal, whatever kind of meal that is. It can be um, a specific activity in physical education or whatever it is. It's something that we as teachers, for whatever pedagogical or didactical reasons, find valuable to put on the table. And then if we're lucky, some of, most likely not all of the students will become interested in what we have put on the table. And in that sense, the school offers, the activity of schooling as I try to conceptualize it here, is about this putting on the table and trying to elicit or entice even the attention and potentially even interest of children. Um, so, so that is the way that I try to conceptualize the activity of schooling here. So probably many listeners will now ask themselves, who decides then what is put on the table? Is it the teacher, him or herself? Is it, again, 
a political activity, a collective decision of a society, what should be taught in schools, who is the one who, who decides? And, and that is, of course, where the public or even the political at times sneaks back in, right? Because these questions will always be open to public, public debate. But I would also say that ultimately, when entering the classroom, the teacher stands before a task between having prepared something in dialogue with whatever is on the curriculum, whether that's a, a, a state-mandated curriculum or it's the curriculum of the school or it's the curriculum that the, the team responsible for whatever subject we're talking about in the school have decided upon. Ultimately, the teacher, when entering the classroom, bears the responsibility for deciding whether this idea, this equation, this book, this text, this activity is to be put on the table today. Because, I mean, teachers enter classrooms that are very different. Even the same group of children can have different uh, atmospheres and mentalities that they bring into to the classroom every day. So ultimately, this responsibility come down, comes down to the teacher. And that's always something that is done in direct dialogue with the students, or hopefully it's done in, in, in direct dialogue with the, with the pupils in, in the classroom setting. So maybe on a given day, We've reached a certain point in mathematics where we've come to algebra, for example, and and then that is what is on the table. But the children have had a big conflict over the break, and at least the first half of our 40 minutes of the lessons are used trying to unravel what actually took place during the break and talking about different things. And then in the end, algebra has to wait. It doesn't mean that algebra shouldn't be put on the table or that the discussion in the political sphere is not important for what we can place on the table in, in, in the activity of schooling. But ultimately, the responsibility of when and how rests in the hands of the teacher. So you argue kind of against a, a division of labor uh, to say that it is a political uh, decision Uh, what is to be put on the table and then the teacher's task is only to deliver it to uh, to enact the curriculum so to speak to, so to speak but you say really of course the the political discussions have an influence on the teacher but in the end it is it is the teacher him or herself who is who is responsible am i right yes so I, so I see it as, as yeah. a dialogue. I mean, it, it's a constant and evolving dialogue between teachers, pupils, the public, uh -huh. news media, politicians, of course, have, have many ideas. But I, I, I mean, there, there's an old uh, juridical term called the arm's length principle that I think we have uh, sadly forgotten when it comes to education. Politicians today are very, very keen to influence what takes place in the school. 
I think politicians should be tasked with delivering the economic and structural um, resources necessary for schools to be run, run in a reasonable pedagogical and didactical way. Uh, and, and actually Arden says this in the crisis in education. She says that really those details of what is to be put on the table and when is something that should be left in the hands of those who work on a daily basis with the children. And of course, they're also, or hopefully, they're also trained in the subject that they teach, right? So a math teacher has not only pedagogical and didactical knowledge and skills and experience, but hopefully also the necessary knowledge of mathematics in order to be able to distinguish what is relevant now for this group of students or pupils. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. So we, we, we talked about schooling and, and the teacher. Uh, and uh, what then is a student? Yes. Um, what is a student? That's a very, very tricky question um, to answer, of course, because a student is quite simply whatever individual who embarks on the first day of school and then continues to be in school for however many years that is. And that's, of course, dependent on, on where this particular individual is, is born and, and lives. So a student or a pupil is someone who has the temporary privilege, I would even say, of being in school. Now, that privilege can incur boredom and uh, feelings of exclusion, uh, being left out, being bullied, all kinds of experiences that we all remember from our own schooling. But one thing that we perhaps rarely talk about or not often enough talk about are the moments when the particular individual, the particular pupil or student becomes attentive. Something, whatever that might be, grabs their attention. And something happens in that moment when, when a student Myself, for example, when we had, I don't know for what reason, but we have, we had a, a period with a theme of, of Native Americans and we were talking about the Battle of Little Bighorn. And for some reason in that, during that week or wherever it was, I was paying attention like I never had before in school. That was something that immediately captured my imagination and my curiosity and my attention. And I became interested, not so much in that particular event, 
but in the historical way of looking at the world. And that's something that then stuck with me. And, and in all honesty, I think for many students, they passed most of their schooling, most of their lessons, how many hours they pass in half attentiveness, in a sense, or even boredom. And much of it we can't even remember. Um, but there are moments. And, and for individual students, this will be obviously individual. That will be dependent on whoever they are. But at some moments, hopefully, they will be grabbed by mathematics, music, geography, poetry, um, whatever subject it is, or whatever particular part of a subject that is, because to stay within uh, the ideas of the book, this is an opportunity to experience a, an effect of the world directly upon myself, something that can lead to me feeling connected with an aspect or a part of the world. Um, and I think at the very basic existential level, that is extremely important for human beings to have that sense of, uh, of being interested and, and, and belonging. So, so what I talk about in, 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 in the chapter uh, where I try to tackle this question of what a student is, um, I do it in a fairly sort of roundabout way, uh, which is perhaps characteristic of the book as a whole. Um, I talk about plurality and collectivity, how the activity of schooling is always a collective act. So it's not a master-learner relation we're talking about. In the activity of schooling, the way that I conceptualize it, it's, it's a group. So it is, in a sense, a collective endeavor. It's also a process of bringing a child or a pupil or a student from what I call self-insight to self-outsight. So bringing attention away from oneself and towards the world, towards what is common, to whatever object of study that is on the table. And it's important to note that, that whatever we place on the table in the activity of schooling becomes something that is common, a public issue, as Marceline and Simmons have referred to it. Um, so it's, for me at least, being a student, hopefully, something that can never be guaranteed because attention and interest can never be guaranteed, but hopefully it is a process of gaining self-outside, of gaining an understanding that we are in a relation to a world that exists both independently of us, but also interdependently of us, so that we're constantly in a dialogue with something that is, that is common with the public and with the people surrounding us, uh, with what Hannah Arendt calls plurality. Now, the, the second observation about what it is to be a student, aside from 
realizing that one lives in a plurality of both things, ideas, and people who have come before and exist in the world simultaneously as, as I do. That was the first aspect. I, I turn to Hannah Arendt's ideas about judgment. Arendt has um, a quite interesting theory of, of judgment, I would say. And it's, it's one that she, in a sense, borrows from Kant's critique of judgment, which is, of course, concerned with aesthetic judgment. And then Arendt turns that and says that what was true of the way that Kant described aesthetic judgment within his theory, his general theory, um, that is today true of all judgments. Even those judgments of reason that Kant would have claimed were universal, Arden claims can no longer be made in any universal way. So they're bound by the same conditions as aesthetic judgment, namely that they are subjective judgment on something that is common or shared, namely the world. So we are faced with a task that is quite challenging, but also enriching in the sense that we have to find validity, not in one universal form of reason, but in the communication and dialogue with other human beings. And that's why judgment for, for, for Arendt hinges on what she calls enlarged thought, or uh, you can say this better than I, Kai, but Erweiterdenkungsart, or an enlarged Erweiterte way of Denkungsart, yes. Erweiterte Denkungsart, yes. Thank you. Um, and that is a, a process or a practice of going visiting, as Arendt says. It's, it's a practice of trying to visit the perspectives of others on a particular phenomenon that we're trying to form some kind of judgment on. So, for example, what will be my judgment of uh, the Battle of Little Bighorn? Well, that will be, would be dependent on my trying to visit the different perspectives of some of the people involved in that event the perspectives of some of the historical interpretations, for example, of that event, and, and trying to see what I can gain for my own thinking, for my own perspective. So it's not an act of empathy or of tolerance, but of, of visiting in a sense, so that I can return to myself and form my own judgment. Um, so the idea is that the role of, of the student then in the activity of, of schooling is to train this ability to go visiting. So in whatever subject is on the table or whatever uh, thing or idea or activity that is on the table, students are invited to direct their attention on it and try to examine the different perspectives that are relevant to this particular thing that is on the table. Um, so, so that is my way of trying to answer the question of what a student is from the perspective of what is it that they are supposed to be doing in this activity.
um, yeah right so i i um asked myself whether this uh going visiting um uh, how how this relates to to the collective endeavor on the one hand side and on the other hand this moment of deep interest you described in your history lesson because probably this interest or this attentiveness to the part of the world which was presented by your teacher was probably not a collective one, right? It was one that uh, was pretty um, pretty idiosyncratic uh, for you, or am I, am, I, am I wrong here? No, and I think that, that points to something very interesting here, because I was, I was in one sense alone when I had that experience because it was it was my experience and and I know for a fact that not many of the other pupils in the room shared that experience. Yeah, I imagine that. Yeah, but nonetheless, they were there, and it was a collective activity of trying to understand this object. And, and and I think that's central because Ardent has this saying that, that we can be uh, lonely in the company of others, which is a feeling of being completely separated. And, and that's a negative experience. But we can also be alone and experience a sense of collectiveness, in a sense. And that's what makes the classroom so interesting, right? Because we are not alone in the classroom, but we can still have these experiences that are uniquely our own and not shared by anyone else in the room. But still, in order for us to be able to talk about it as an activity of schooling, it needs to be something that is, in one sense or another, collective. There is an attempt by the teacher to gather more than one attention, hopefully more than one attention, on whatever is placed on the table. So it's, it's about dragging students out of the loneliness that we can experience when we feel excluded and at the same time, allowing a space for what Arden then calls solitude, the, the, the moment of actually being able to have the realization that, wow, this is something that interests me. I wonder what um, General Custer was experiencing here, for example. So, so there's that doubleness present in, in the activity of schooling, of wanting to drag students out of whatever is occupying their mind that is excluding them from being in the moment or in the present and being attentive towards what it is we're doing in the classroom. And at the same time, keeping that space open for individual experiences. Um, and I, I find that really interesting. But also, of course, it's perhaps one of the most challenging things of being a teacher 
constantly trying to balance that um, phenomenon of speaking to a group of people and then still trying to capture individual uh, attention. The best thing, of course, if, is if we could somehow conjure up collective attentiveness. Uh, but I think that is a very, very rare phenomenon is if, if it ever even happens. Doesn't this also speak about, about current debates about uh, individualization? I mean, at least in, in Germany, there is a huge discussion about uh, individual support in school. And it seems to me like everyone sees this as a, a, a progression, as a progress that now we can be very, very like every student is an individual and therefore every student can be individually supported, like even have a little curriculum of his or her own. And as far as I understood, you would argue against this and, and um, uh, put emphasis on, on, the, on the collectivity as a necessary condition for these intense individual learning experiences. Yes, ab absolutely. I, 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 not in the sense of being against there being more teachers or uh, even uh, assistant teachers for each individual student. I, I, I don't know if that would be good or bad, but I, I think uh, pupils, children, they also thrive when attention is directed towards them. Right. So if there are more teachers in the room who can help with this process of forming or shaping attention, then then that could be a good thing. But that's not the same thing as tailoring activities or teaching to what is perceived as individual needs or individual learning styles. You know, that perpetuated myth that each student has their own particular learning style, which has, of course, been debunked on a number of occasions, but is still very much alive. Um, so on the one hand, there's, I think there's, there's merit in having enough resources to be able to aid the process of attention formation of, of each student. But that, for me, is something very different from, from catering, if you will, to individual learning styles or individual needs. Because I, I, I really don't think that is what schooling is about. Schooling is much more of a, of a collective activity in order for it to make sense for, for teachers and, and for pupils. Because schooling, in that sense, is, is not about learning in any strict sense of acquiring specific knowledge or skills or competences because if it was then we'd probably be able to discover much more efficient meals means of providing that than what we have for a couple of thousand years called schools right probably we are actually in in the historical uh, um um, time in which uh, this shift happens, uh, namely that uh, due to the co uh, pandemic, uh, now everyone uh, sees the uh, beauty of um, learning on distance. And this is indeed an individual learning, right? Because this uh, intense experience of collectivity 
can uh, only hardly take place uh, without a physical uh, gathering. Um, mm. Well, this was not a question. That was more of a of a thought I I just had. Uh, yeah, and, and I'm not sure we're actually experiencing uh, the realization that digital learning is is beautiful or or even very uh, efficient. Uh, now that's not my area of study, so I, I only speak on 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 the basis of personal experiences with with university teaching, and and my experience is is not that students or colleagues are you know, very happy with this and thinking, let's continue this way. And I think the ones that are, let's continue the digital way, are mainly thinking about private sort of logistic things. I mean, it's very easy to just stay at home and and be able to uh, to do what you want uh, instead of commuting to work or whatever it is you have to do to, to get there. I think those, those are practical details that, that really have nothing to do with, with what it is we're trying to do. Right. My, my, I, yeah. I've... I've had the experience that some things can work. So, for example, if you have a group of students in a seminar where a certain of quite high percentage of the students have prepared and are interested and committed and attentive, then an online seminar can work fairly well. On the other hand, if you're giving a lecture, to 100 students that are not that interested and not that prepared, that's going to be pretty bad. It's also going to be pretty bad even in a physical room, right? But but at least in the physical room, you have the possibility of, of, of sort of feeling the atmosphere in a sense or looking at the students or engaging with the, question, with the students with questions. It's very hard to do in front of a, a dark screen where... A lot of cameras are turned off and so on. Um, and I think the idea of, of digital learning environments that, that go away from, from seminars and focus on activity and tasks, well, then we're approaching something that I would hesitate to call schooling. We can call it individual learning, and I'm sure it can be very efficient for some students or pupils. But I would hesitate to call it schooling or even consider the results of that uh, to be uh, interesting. Absolutely. Uh, from the perspective. Absolutely. Of my my thought was precisely this. It is. It is. It can be an effective uh, way of uh, learning or acquiring knowledge. It, I would argue it can be more effective than schooling. But of course, yes. uh, as you argue, schooling is uh, about something else, or at least mainly also about something more uh, than just um, learning uh, knowledge. Um, that, that, that was my thought, that uh, I, uh, I was not proposing to, to uh, shift uh, uh, to, to online learning instead of schooling. But uh, right, so maybe, maybe uh, one, one last question more um, focusing on, on the book. I, I wonder whether you can explain the, the title uh, bearing with strangers. What what does that mean? Bearing with strangers means that every human being is confronted with the task of 
bearing with, so being able to live with that and those that are strange. The fact that I will never truly or fully know anyone in their entire being, right? So in a sense, human beings, and to a certain extent, this goes for myself as well. We are strangers to ourselves and to the world, but that does not mean that we cannot strive to to bear with it. And that can have a negative resonance, this idea of having to bear with something that's bad, but then I, I tolerate it or bear with it. But that's not really what's at stake here. It's It's not a question of tolerating or accepting that bad things are there but a, a question of actually being able to live with that fact that that I will never know the world in its entirety and I will never know myself or any other human being in their entirety either so so that's that's uh, what's in the title and 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 I've actually I hadn't considered the um, the negative connotations until they were, were brought to my attention actually from a student in the US who had read the book and said that she did not like the title because it, it sounded very negative as if that was a, a negative experience of just accepting that other you know things are bad and then just bearing with them as a, an act of, of um, charity or something like that but Really, to me, it, it, it speaks about that activity. And, and, and for Arendt, that experience is tightly connected to her concept of understanding. So understanding is connected to that constant process and struggle of trying to come to terms with whatever has taken place in the world. And for someone who, who uh, experienced the, the, the Holocaust in at least uh, a relative closeness, that is, is quite a task. And I mean, we're constantly, all of us, face today with images of, of things and events and acts that are pretty horrific uh, around the world. Uh, and so many inequalities and so many um, issues that we wish we could change. But then returning to the task of the teacher, well, well that is one of the tasks of the teacher, right? or basically of anyone um, engaged with, with children, is to, to somehow stand as a representative of that world that no one in their right mind would essentially represent because it is out of joint, in a sense. And, and so many bad things go on in the world and there's so much injustice. But nonetheless, in our relation to our children, we have to take that responsibility of at least trying to point out that it is a space that is fit for living, in a sense. Yeah. So uh, I, I break my promise and, and now <laughs> comes the last question. <laughs> How does this relate to, uh, to the notion of inclusion? Well, I, I think it, it, in a sense, speaks to the, basically the, the, the main point of, of the book, that inclusion is also a practice of, of being in this constant uh, question of, of bearing with the world and those who are different from us. 
So that is that is that is the sort of basic tenant of of the activity of schooling from the point of view of inclusion is that it has to be this collective uh, process that is engaged with um, with judging with looking at the world, with studying the world, with having things on the table and accepting the different perspectives that can be brought to bear on those objects. Okay, Martin, we've taken up a lot of your time, but my last question is, what are you working on right now? Um, well, right now, I'm, I've, I've not working on very much because the pandemic has had quite an impact on, on family and, and, and working life where I am. Uh, but I was working and I will return to working on a book that will, will build on some of the ideas that are in the book we've been talking about today, but we'll try to, to, to take a different um, angle on those things. And it's called at least for the moment, it's called retuning education. And, and um, it tackles one aspect that I, I haven't touched so much upon to today, but which is also in, in Bearing with Strangers, the, the notion of exemplarity. It also tries to tackle the good old German concept of Bildung and whether that is something that can be of interest to working out what this activity of schooling is. Okay, that sounds very interesting. I'm looking forward to uh, a new episode on this book with you. But uh, for today, thank you very much for joining me on New Books in Education. Thank you for having me, Kai.